you know, from day one of my work and my career, I've always specified that there's a bigger picture and that in order for us all to have some type of hand on change, we've all got to be in tune with the bigger picture at the end of the day. I don't exist in this whole big world by myself. My mother's teachings have taught me that, you know, and so creating the space for us to have access to our own thoughts, but also our collective vision around humanity is really what the bigger focus of my work is. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. did not set out to lead movements for social justice, nor was it her lifelong dream to make the world a better and safer place for black transgender communities. Growing up in Ohio, she imagined herself as an iconic singer, a chart-topping diva with a voice powerful enough to crack your soul wide open. In the end, she did end up using the power of her voice to inspire people, just not in the way she originally planned. As one of the world's most effective leaders in the movement for social change, Elle has dedicated her life to organizing and advocating for marginalized communities. She began her career working on campaigns for marriage equality and don't ask, don't tell policy change. She then transitioned to groundbreaking work as a leading voice for the Black Lives Matter Global Network. In her current role as the founder and executive director, of the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, she's dedicated herself to protecting and defending the human rights of black transgender people. Under Elle's leadership, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute has become a vital resource for black trans women in particular, who have suffered an onslaught of violent attacks resulting in alarmingly low life expectancy rates. Elle has focused on raising awareness advocating for policy change, and marshalling resources to provide pathways to stability. Her work has generated widespread media attention toward the plight of Black trans women in the pages of Vogue and the LA Times. The Institute also recently received a $500,000 gift from Google, earmarked for COVID relief. Among Elle's many remarkable qualities is her ability to apply a strategic mindset toward affecting change within her own besieged community. But it's the strength of Elle's voice, what she says and how she says it, that remains her most powerful tool in her efforts to build a better world for all its inhabitants. Please enjoy my conversation with Elle Hearns. I want to begin by introducing you to our, our listeners. And um, 
You know, I, I read this wonderful statement that you made at some point that I thought was so beautifully put. You said, I'm a black trans woman who is learning more and more about myself each day. And I thought that that was just so lovely and wanted to begin with that sentiment and to ask you to just explore that with us a little bit and talk about both who you are, how you identify and how you're learning about yourself more and more each day. Yeah, it's a great place to start. Uh, I think so much about people who call themselves subject matter experts. And uh, I always think like, you know, who assigned that to you? Where did you get uh, indoctrinated with the belief that you were an expert? And I think, you know, for me, I realized like, we're all an expert at our lived experience. We're all experts at our individual um, hardships, uh, but also our love. And so I'm someone who's constantly learning to love others uh, but mm. most importantly, you know, how to love myself, right. uh, you know, this time has certainly, I think, caused us all to stop and sit with, you know, harsh realities about the world, but also our own existence in the world and the potential, you know, for our demise. And so, you know, as someone who's certainly impacted by a lot of different social uh, issues, you know, who I am and how I identify is something that much like that statement, it's ever changing because I'm learning new ways about myself and how I want to feel, uh, but also how I want to be seen in the world. And, you know, at this point, I'm just a black woman, someone who deeply desires to love and to be loved and who's very much so, I think, looking forward to the future, uh, especially a future beyond this current moment that we're in. You know, I was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. So, Everywhere I go, I tell everybody I'm just an Ohio girl. Uh, mm. I've spent time in New York and also in D.C. and definitely appreciate having homes and having references for home. But uh, home in my heart is definitely, you know, the grass of Ohio. So, yeah, you know, uh, I've uh, lived many lives. Yeah, well, I'd love to explore those a little bit. But there's something about the courage of self-acceptance that I learned from from reading about you and seeing you in these various different roles that I think is very powerful and I think opens up ways to examine all kinds of other things that you've been talking about. So let's talk a little bit about that childhood in Columbus, which I'm very uh -huh. curious about. Yeah. And who Elle was then and <laughs> what the process was uh, for you, which... Must have been a very um, eventful time for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, very eventful. Uh, it was, yeah, it, it was a lot. Uh, I experienced so many different things, you know, growing up in Columbus, Ohio. You know, one of the earliest memories that I have is just I always gravitated towards dance and music and sound. You know, those were my places of comfort, things that were beautiful, art. You know, I always had like an eye for things that were stimulating to me. You know, I uh, found a lot of my, I think, early peace and being able to express myself in lots of different ways. And yeah, I grew up very religious, very apostolic. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, church was the foundation for a lot of my understanding of community. Um, but also my own community. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood where there were people who looked like me, there were black faces. Um, and that was comforting to be able to know your neighbor and to know your neighbor's kids and to know their dogs. And, you know, that was definitely what I remember the most. You know, I definitely 
experienced a lot of things probably most people don't experience, uh, unfortunately, you know, but that's good and bad. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, just to pick up on on one element of what you were just saying before, because I often ask guests to talk about their creative spirit as children, because it's always interesting to trace that to who they are now. And so I want to focus on that for a moment and just to ask you to maybe say a little bit more about this point you were making about how your own creativity allowed you to, as I heard it, connect with you a little bit more. It was a bridge to your soul in a way, if I could extrapolate that. It was, you know, it was, I think, a very early understanding of without this thing, without these inspirations, you know, I don't know who I am. You know, I knew who I was in music and song. I knew very clearly what I was moved by and what I wasn't, what inspired me and what didn't. And so you know, I grew up wanting to be the greatest singer ever. That was my dream. <laughs> you know, that was what I placed myself in, you know, uh, whether it was Patti LaBelle or Whitney Houston or Mary J. Blige, that was, you know, my model of excellence was those Black women. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time just really creating my own persona around the potential of what I thought my musical voice could be. And so I played in that so much, you know, I spent most of my childhood really just returning to a fictional uh, singer that I had created in my mind. Uh, and she was great. She won every award. <laughs> <laughs> she made every album. She She's had amazing, every endorsement. Yeah. She was amazing. And so, great. you know, it was always great to have that as a place of escape. You know, so no matter what was happening in my world or what people were telling me I couldn't be, I had this place that I knew I could exist in in my own mind. And that was really a freedom. You know, as I look back on it, I had the freedom to really imagine myself outside of uh, maybe what other people were imagining for me. Oh, God, I think that's wonderful. I just want to stay with this for a minute because... Your own imagination is what gave you the power, the vehicle, the way into who you were on a very fundamental level, right? And you, mm -hmm. I know you talk a little bit about the feeling of being trapped. Uh, it's a kind of existential issue at that time. But what I'm hearing is that it was your imagination that, that carried you to some greater truth. Yeah, it's always been not only my imagination, but my faith. And that was such a big fundamental part of my life. And so you know, I knew that God loved me. And so I knew that if this omnipotent one loved me, there could be no limit to what I could imagine for myself. And so my faith, but also my imagination is really what mm. carried me through Lovely. to finding such an early, I think, connection with my spirit. And there certainly was interruptions along the journey, you know, uh, but it's been a foundation that I always return to no matter what. So do you have early memories of being called to uh, organize uh, as, <laughs> as a child, uh, organize for change? I mean, clearly an internal change was, was stirring for you, but was that child also looking out at the world and mm -hmm. wanting to uh, impact change as well? Yeah, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating about my own journey is there really wasn't an internal change. I think if anything, there was an internal acceptance Mm. Uh, but there wasn't an actual change because I never felt like I was different than myself. I never felt like I was outside of myself. So it was just an acceptance that who I was told I was wasn't who I was going to be. 
And so I think that was really what led to a lot of my early organizing is that I knew I wanted what I wanted. (laughs) And I knew that there were people who were going to stand in the way of me getting what I wanted. And so, you know, I think one of my earliest memories was probably the fourth grade. You know, I had ran for student council president or vice president, and I put so much faith in uh, hope and so much work into running for, you know, elementary school class president. And um, I lost. And I remember being so devastated because, again, you know, this fictional character that I had in my mind, you know, she didn't lose. So losing was like a defeat that was really hard to accept. But I knew I wasn't just going to let that be it. I knew that I was going to come back the next year and I was going to give an even better speech and I was going to win. And that's what happened. I won. Perfect ending to the story. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> no, that's great. All right. Well, let's move forward uh, a little bit in your life as an organizer and activist. And I think specifically, I would love to ask you to talk about how you found yourself to get equal, maybe explain to the listeners what get equal is and, and just a little bit about that time for you. Uh, Get Equal, for those who do not know, was a organization dedicated to marriage equality and LGBT equality. Uh, It was a direct action based organization that really took what some would call a radical approach to really fighting for justice and for the rights of LGBTQ people uh, as an organization that led a lot of the work around uh, repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Um, but was also very influential at the very beginning of the marriage equality movement. I joined Get Equal in 2015 after spending about eight months building some notoriety as a member of the Trans Women of Color Collective of Ohio. Uh, We were a small grassroots group that really was working with the Black Lives Matter movement to really develop um, an analysis, but also a broader movement perspective around what Black Lives Matter uh, was. And so Get Equal took notice of that work. And I met two of the directors uh, at a conference uh, that I had been very influential at uh, with some analysis that they had not heard but also some activism that they had never seen. And that really, you know, kind of formulated the space to um, engage in a position that they made available uh, for a job. And at that time, I didn't know anything about nonprofits or people could get paid to be activists and organizers. You know, I was a little black woman from Columbus. So I knew that I didn't have those type of opportunities in Columbus. And so if there was someone who took interest in what I had to offer, I wanted to pursue it. Uh, Plus, I no longer wanted to, you know, be homeless. (laughs) And I didn't want to, you know, work at a bank anymore. So uh, I applied and uh, I got the job. I went full steam into the role, being the first Black uh, trans woman to be a part of that organization. Um, And at that time, at the national level, 
there were not a lot of black trans women who were involved in nonprofit organizations, especially not for social justice. So in a lot of ways, I was leading not only this organization, but an entire field of work around um, strategies, organizing strategies for black trans people in the United States. I read you reflect on a distinction between liberation and equality mm -hmm. that I thought was really interesting and yeah. wanted to ask a little bit more what that means to you and if you might explore that because I think the principle is so compelling really. Yeah, uh, that was a great tension in my role with Get Equal. You know, I came into an organization where equality was their biggest mission. It was their biggest focus and it wasn't something that I believed in. Um, I had a different framework around what was needed for myself, but what was needed for people who were like me, who did not find ourselves reflected in the equality movement. You know, and, and I, I believe my perspective at that time was the idea of equality is a falsity in itself because it's under the premise that we would all be equal when we're not entering into this equal. And so, you know, I really wanted to shift the organization's framework around equality into one that was about equity um, and one that was centered and focused on reparations, you know, until this country and all of, you know, the colonies across the world have really provided the admission, but also the necessary resources to reflect the labor that has been produced by Black people to create even the space for equality to be a concept, you know, until that happens, there's no space to really pursue this idea of equality. People deserve and have been fighting for their liberation, not just from, you know, uh, stereotypes about sexuality, but we're talking about a system that was built on anti-Black colonialism. And so that is really, you know, what I wanted the organization to really shift into a framework around as we continue to pursue um, our work, because I did not want to see us create the space where only white gay men were benefiting from the work of black trans women like myself. Um, you know, black trans women in particular have been fighting an, an equitable battle for so long without the support of larger movements. And so equality did not make sense as a framework. And um, even now, it's still strange that there are a lot of people who associate freedom with equality. Those two are not uh, exclusive. Uh, they, haven't, they haven't even been on a date with each other. You know, they're still fumbling around each other on the dance floor. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't like to fumble. I like to dance full out. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that was really... Um, yeah, that was where I was then. And, you know, I always try to imagine like, you know, is there an analysis that's even beyond where my, my thinking was then sure. around what it is that we have to gain from shifting our focus to something bigger and something larger? And I do think liberation does create the space to imagine something that we haven't imagined before. And was that insight and that really important 
and very, very, to me, very compelling way to think about it. Did that find its way into the organization? Were you able to bring that sensibility there and affect how people worked and how they thought about things? Um, I will say that it was a <laughs> lot of tension. Uh, you know, one thing that I have had to fight against in my entire career is there being an old guard of people wanting things to stay the same and also a guard on people who don't want to do extra work. <laughs> and so part of what I knew going into the role is that I'm the only black person on staff. So I'm always going to be doing more work than everybody else, period, just because there's a cultural understanding that I have that the rest of this community does not have. And one thing that the organization had started to shift its focus on was immigration. And, you know, the reality even with that is there was a lack of focus around how undocumented areas affected Black people. You know, Black immigrants was not a part of the conversation. And so as someone who wasn't an immigrant, but was very connected to organizations doing work around Black immigrants, you know, it was a tension. And so a lot of what I wanted to do was not met with enthusiasm. You know, I remember one particular call we had, uh, I asked the organization and the representatives, you know, my peers, the staff, to tell me what their definition of anti-Blackness was. And the entire call went silent. <laughs> People hung up. And I spent so much time trying to figure out what I said that created such a intense reaction. And I never got any clarity on that. I never got any feedback on where the organization stood as it related to anti-Blackness. Really, um, that moment just hangs there unresolved? It hung. And, to you know, the, <laughs> there was language being used around white supremacy. But when we got very, very specific about anti-Blackness, it was an empty space. And that was very... Um, it was very disheartening. And so I was very clear that I could not trust the organization. In my mind, I felt like I could not trust the organization to really support the work that I wanted to do. Unfortunately, the organization no longer is operating. And I do think that is partly because uh, they were unwilling to address what I saw was on the horizon for the larger LGBT movement, but every movement, race, um, because of the work of the Black Lives Matter movement was shifting, you know, the entire world. Um, and I do believe that many organizations uh, like Get Equal, unfortunately, were unwilling to shift. Yeah, fascinating. And and a great segue to my next question, which um, is as we um, are going through your story here, the book <laughs> of the book of L, uh, as the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Global Network. And if you could, again, just give the listeners a sense of what that network is and reflect on that experience. Yeah, absolutely. So during my time with Get Equal, I was spending some time in multiple roles throughout movements. And so I was still an ambassador to the Trans Women of Color Collective. But outside of the Trans Women of Color Collective, I was also uh, somewhat of an ambassador for Black Lives Matter. So I took all of my relationships to those three spaces and I represented them everywhere that I went. So if it was in media and press, I made sure that I had talking points that were specific to each of those organizations work. Uh, you know, over time, it became very clear that I could no longer 
structure my life and my work in that way because it became very overwhelming trying to hold and juggle so much. And so, you know, I got to a point with Get Equal where, you know, I was working without benefits. (laughs) Um, I didn't have health insurance. I didn't have really a livable salary. I was just kind of making ends meet. But I was traveling all over the country, you know, supporting organizers, but also supporting, you know, policy and just so many different things that I was working to to build. And so I was named a uh, strategic partner by Patrice Cullors, uh, who is one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, the hashtag. And part of the reason why I was named a strategic partner is because I was a spokesperson for the organization, but also because of my direct work with uh, chapters that have formed across the country. Black Lives Matter, the organization, was a chapter-based organization that comprised of over 30 chapters uh, throughout the U.S. and one in Canada. Um, And because of my relationships with those chapters, uh, there wasn't many opportunities for the rest of the co-founders to really engage as deeply as I was. So while I'm not necessarily a co-founder of Black Lives Matter, that label was really put on me because of the front-facing work that I was doing in my relationship to uh, not only the co-founders, but all of the chapters across the country. Um, And so, you know, I've never called myself that. I've just accepted uh, that I was looked at and viewed in a particular way because of my work. And so that was really, you know, uh, kind of the the backstory or backdrop, you know, to um, L. Hearn's co-founder, um, you know. And what I will say is that the organization had not formed in those early days in a formal way. But, you know, it was a lot of my work uh, in encouraging um, there to be a centralized space to support these chapters that uh, did lead, you know, to the organization forming formally. Um, Right. And you are the founder of the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. Yes. Can you help listeners understand a little bit about Marsha and about the mission of your organization? Absolutely. Uh, Marsha P. Johnson is the foremother of our movement. You know, she is the the mother of the Uh, Black Trans Lives Matter movement. You know, she was the mother of the trans movement before there was a movement. She's the mother of the LGBT movement. Really, a lot of her work was centered around fighting for the rights of all gay people. Uh, Marsha was credited and rightfully so with being one of the brick throwers that really led to the Stonewall Rebellion uh, in 1969. Uh, She's credited with throwing the first brick, with throwing the first punch. You know, so many stories exist around what led to the rebellion having permission to do what it did. I don't know what stories are true and what stories are not true. But what I do know is true is that Marsha was certainly a Black person in 1969, having a very Black experience in an LGBT space. And so my own history as a Black trans woman working in a LGBT organization, I could only imagine what type of tensions and dynamics she was navigating uh, as she was fighting for her rights and the rights of people who were like her. And so, you know, I saw so many parallels to myself as an organizer, uh, to Marsha and some of those dynamics that I know from a organizer's perspective she experienced. So yeah, that's essentially what led 
<laughs> MPJI. And it's so charming <laughs> if you could just define for the listeners what the P stands for, what Marsha had said, which is sweet and important. Yeah, you know, I believe, you know, the story goes that Marsha appeared in court. So for those who don't know, Marsha was definitely, you know, someone who did not conform. You know, she was not going to follow the law. Um, she's someone who was definitely eccentric and, you know, a lot of people love and adore her today, but the love and adoration is not necessarily something that I don't know if she could feel, you know, I don't know if she felt as loved as she did ridiculed by people who didn't understand her, but, you know, nonetheless, the P, uh, and her name, the judge asked her, what's the P for? And Marsha responded, you know, pay it no mind. Right. Um, and so often people in interviews and, and the historical things that I've seen have said that the P uh, for pay it no mind is what Marsha would also refer people back to when they would ask her about her gender. You know, and so I just love that, you know, no matter what it stood for, it stood for something for her. And I think that's one of the many fascinating pieces to how she lived her life. But also a call for a more expansive sense of who she was as a human yeah. being. It was yeah. a call to action, you know, it Absolutely. was a call to action yeah. for us to honor her um, in whatever way that she chose to be defined and that she couldn't be defined. And exactly. I think that was one yeah. of the things that I loved and, you know, I felt very similar to in my own life and my own activism, which is why I named the organization after Marsha. And I felt like as a black trans woman, that was the least that I could do to ensure that our movement had a constant reminder about her contributions, but also the contributions of activists of today. So one element of the activism that I really want to invite you to talk about regards this unconscionable violence that's perpetrated against Black trans women particularly. I mean, the statistics are just appalling that I read and how you're facing that and the kind of work you're doing in your efforts really to, to meet that tragedy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think uh, is so important to note, you know, for me is that I come into my work having my own experiences. And that certainly has fueled a lot of my desire to, to be uh, as visible as I am. I never wanted to be visible for my activist work. I wanted to be visible because I was a great singer. <laughs> so it's one of those things in life I had to accept that my calling, while still could be song, it's probably my activism. And so I had to really lean into that. And, you know, one of the ways that I leaned into that was just an understanding around where I was positioned in the world. Uh, and I spent time being homeless. I spent time being arrested. I spent time looking for ways outside of the traditional ways to make money. And those experiences really led me to being fed up uh, and led me to really finding my own voice. And so, you know, the unfortunate reality for so many Black trans people, uh, but specifically Black trans women, young women, is this uncertainty around uh, not knowing how you're going to die. 
you know, that is such a daunting thing to live with. And I found myself being somebody who was constantly considering that and learning about other women, you know, whether it was through Monica Roberts blog, uh, God bless the memory of Monica Roberts, who we just recently lost, um, or just my own research, you know, trying to figure out where other women like me existed. I was learning about the deaths and the murders of women. And that was such a hard thing to situate myself in is that what's happening to these women could certainly happen to me. And, you know, after being arrested, you know, it's nothing like going to jail uh, because you realize just how far you are um, or how close you are to death. And that was such an eye-opening and necessary intervention in my own life that really led me down a path to activism was I realized that I was either going to come back to jail if I didn't figure out something or I was going to be, you know, dead. And I didn't want that. And I sat with how many other women are living this reality, you know, who don't actually have the choices that I had to get out of it. That was really, I think, hard to live with. Uh, and so a big part of the activist work that I was doing in 2014 and 2015 was really working to organize not only media, but community to be aware that these murders were happening and it wasn't just happening because someone was ashamed of their sexuality or someone was ashamed of sex work. You know, it was be happening because there was a system that had disconnected an entire group of people from having a meaningful way to survive. And so, you know, the activist work that we do at the Marsha P. Johnson Institute is really around protecting and defending that community, um, you know, whether it's through our advocacy efforts or through our policy recommendations or just even in our work in media, we recognize that there's a political and cultural reckoning that must happen at every turn in order for these murders to really not only subside, but that our people don't get murdered in other ways. And that was one of the big things for me was just making sure that, you know, okay, sure, we can get guns and weapons out of the hands of people who are, are doing these killings. But what does the community have to actually create the space where this isn't a way of life any longer? You know, what jobs have we created? Uh, what 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 have we created? You know, um, so, yeah, that was, you know, some of the big big questions that I was trying to answer when I created this organization. It's an amazing story. And it's an amazing way to put it, really, that, you know, they live their lives preoccupied or figuring out what, what their death is going to be, that that becomes the, the point of focus. And so how do you open your heart and your, how do you do your work to address that kind of question? Yeah. Is there a, a community support element to the work that you're doing as well at the Institute? On the personal level, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the difficult challenges about running an organization is how personal do you get, you know, and still having some space for yourself. Uh, and so that's something that we're still figuring out. I will say that there is a membership component to our organization where we are a membership organization specifically because we recognize that people need 
community and need other people who are thinking about the world in the ways that they are. And so we wanted to create that space for Black trans people who might be isolated in their own lives. Uh, but we also recognize there's so many people wanting to learn more about being in collaboration and solidarity with Black trans people. Um, and so we created a dual membership, you know, to really create the community that we believe should exist in the world. You know, if I had it my way, it would just be Black trans people in the world. But clearly, we're a little bit outnumbered. <laughs> so, um, you know, what that means when you're a marginalized person or you're a part of a marginalized group uh, is that you have to learn constantly how to navigate being alive. And so what we wanted to make sure we were doing was creating the space where not only were we shifting, but that we were encouraging and inviting the majority into shifting as well, because that's the bigger shift that's needed to really accommodate, you know, those who are on the margins of society. Beautiful. You have just, or you received, I guess, several months ago, a, a significant gift from Google. The <laughs> Marsha P. Johnson Institute received a significant gift from Google. I'm just wondering, uh, first of all, congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what are you doing with those funds? And uh, does the gift signal something to you about maybe there's a different kind of listening going on or not? I don't know. That's a probably a more complex question than it might appear. Yeah, Not complex at all. I think, if anything, it signals that all of the work that I've been doing for so many years, that there are people listening. And that's something that I'm very grateful for. When you do this kind of work, you do feel like you're alone. Uh, a lot of times because you have ideas, you have visions. And like I said, there's going to be a lot of people who don't believe in them. But I learned very early on, uh, you know, what it means to have a vision and to have a dream and to really want to make that, you know, come true. Um, so I've just been manifesting. And I think that the partnership with Google certainly symbols that for me, but also it symbols that for the rest of the community who's been working so hard to create more resources. Uh, the resources we've acquired from Google and our partnership are dedicated specifically to our COVID relief fund, which is a fund that we created uh, to offset, you know, uh, any critical circumstances that Black trans people in the United States are experiencing because of this pandemic. We know that so many of our community members were already experiencing hardship prior to the pandemic that that was only going to be intensified. And so we wanted to make sure we were creating our own, our own stimulus, if you will, uh, to supplement the needs of our community that we know and knew the government would not be uh, prioritizing considering the current administration's outlook on trans communities. So our COVID relief program is where all of those uh, resources are being dedicated to Every single dollar, you know, is is going into that work. And we're so grateful uh, for Google for believing in us and believing in the vision that we have for Black trans people. And can you talk a little bit more? I'm, I'm interested um, about the impact of the pandemic on your work in the communities you, you're dedicated to, as you began to say, but also what resources exist for the trans community, uh, medical resources, shelter, resources that speak to the loneliness that you identified. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I think is so fascinating about our success as an organization is most people think that we're several years old. We've been around. I've been around as an organizer, but the organization just turned one in June. So we're a very new organization. And um, I think that speaks volumes to the impact and the need 
uh, of our impact in communities where our people are isolated. And so I don't know much about the resources specifically from government that have been created around the trans community. I don't think there's many resources to be quite honest with you. And that's from a national scale. What I do know is that nonprofit organizations have stepped up. There are community groups across the country that have created their own COVID relief programs, providing direct cash assistance, food assistance to the community. There's so many organizations that are pursuing housing, direct housing for organizations. It is a dream of the Marsha P. Johnson Institute to be able to create a physical space to house our community. I was someone who spent time living in a car, so I know what it means to be homeless and to not have anywhere to turn to. There were no organizations for me to acquire money from directly in Columbus, Mm -hmm. Ohio in 2014. So Mm -hmm. um, there's so much that I know Black trans-led organizations are doing right now to really support the community. And it's our goal at the Marsha P. Johnson Institute to continue our work and to continue providing more space physically so that our people always have shelter and protection. Honestly, I just want to make sure I pause here to congratulate you on this unbelievable work. Um, really, really powerful and and wonderful. And uh, I just, I'm very, I'm quite moved by it. So oh, thank you. Th- thank you. It's uh. It's hard work. And every day yeah, I ask is. myself, why did I choose this work? <laughs> or why did this work choose me? But I know the impact it's having. It's having an impact. And um, it's all part of you learning more and more about yourself, I think, too, to, to quote you. Yeah, yeah, that's what it seems mm. like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe I can tap your wisdom a little bit about the connection of some of this to our world of higher education and art and design at, at Art Center. And and maybe just ask you very, you know, straight up, do you have advice or some fundamental principles for young aspiring activists? There are so many students at Art Center. There are so many young people who really want to do good work. And your story is inspiring to them. And wonder if you have anything you want to say that in that regard. You know, I, I, I think there's lots of dynamics around higher education in the world, uh, but specifically in this country. And so... You know, just trying to think back to some of my college experiences, uh, one, just being a black trans woman in a college setting uh, at the time that I was enrolled in college in 2005, it was a very different world. uh, And that was isolating even in itself. But I will say that to anyone who is thinking about what their plight or their path is. Education is always the catalyst. Uh, Luckily for me, my mother exposed me to books very, very early on. Uh, When I was, you know, probably six or seven, I was reading adult aged books. uh, And that's part of where my own knowledge and thinking about the world um, really came from. So education is certainly key, but college is not the end all be all to your success. There is so much work that you have to do inside and outside of the higher uh, education field to have impact if that's truly what you desire. Um, There is a certain humbleness that one must maintain um, around not only your ability, but what you envision you'll be able to do with the knowledge that you obtain from higher education Um, and just a belief, you know, whatever your belief system is, um, it's important to maintain that, you know, I certainly had a foundation 
And that was really what was helpful for me to reference in my work as an organizer, but also in my voice as an activist. I believe in something that's bigger than myself. And I have to maintain that in order to create any kind of sanity around uh, the opportunities that I've been giving. I am accountable not only to my community, but I'm accountable to myself. And will I be able to live with myself and the decisions that I'm making once they're made? And so I think there's this piece around ethical ideas and decisions that I think are really important to the fundamental approach to building success for oneself. Is there a way that you think about that we as an art and design school might might be able to collaborate with you in your work? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we were planning on launching in 2020, but unfortunately, because of COVID, our best friend, we've had to put it on hold. But uh, one of the things that I think, like I said, is just so many parallels between Marsha P. Johnson and myself Uh, It's just the love of art. Marsha loved art, uh, literally was walking, talking fashion, served as a muse for Andy Warhol. Uh, She was an artist, you know, performing in performance troops with the hot peaches, just so many different facets of her own creativity and artistry. Myself, I've always loved music and art and been a big fan. I was enrolled in an art uh, institute, you know, as one of the schools that I dropped out from. Uh, So nonetheless, we understand that creativity is such an essential component for individuals who are trans. It's, you know, the freedom of expression, uh, the freedom of desire and being able to articulate that in art form is something we certainly believe in. So our plan at some point is to launch our artist fellowship where we are providing our fellows potentially with the opportunity to pursue social justice initiatives from an art perspective with technical assistance. And so I do feel like that's something that an institution like you all's would be really helpful in supporting in any ways that you could, just because we understand that art really is a lifesaver. Uh, and when people have the opportunity to dream about themselves artistically, you know, lives are changed. And the Marsha P. Johnson Institute is my latest art project. And I'm super excited to continue to create more. Well, I love that. And um, I can say there's a lot of people in this community, faculty, students, staff, all across the board who would, I think, love to do that and be part of it. I love that. All right. Just to wrap up then, uh, just a couple of concluding principles that I thought would be interesting that we can learn from your work. You know, I loved what you were saying earlier about liberation. I thought that was so important. And it, it extends to community as well, meaning it, there's a sense that none of us will experience full liberation until we can spread it and we can all find a certain level of liberation. And does that kind of principle inform your work and inform the way you're thinking as well? Are you finding yourself connected in any way that extends your work and gives meaning to it on a different level because we're all humanity here trying to move this forward? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, from day one of my work and my career, I've always specified that there's a bigger picture and that in order for us all to have some type of hand on change, we've all got to be in tune with the bigger picture at the end of the day. I don't exist in this whole big world by myself. My mother's teachings have taught me that 
Other people have to survive. And so I can't move through life only considering my own survival as a rule of thumb. I have to really consider the bigger picture for all of us, meaning our freedom to choose, meaning our freedom to have agency over our bodies and also to have agency over our minds. And so that is something we all have to be thinking critically about. It is my hope that, you know, we would all think the same way. But I recognize that that's impossible, you know, and so creating the space for us to have access to our own thoughts, but also our collective vision around humanity is really what the bigger focus of my work is. Uh, Unfortunately for my work, it means I have to cut through uh, more grass than most, uh, but it's something that I I recognize I'm able to do uh, just because I've been uniquely positioned to do so. Uh, And we all just have to find our unique positions in this thing called life without killing people in the process. Right, right. But I love the way it goes back to this notion of liberation, too, and how that can happen on so many levels. And as you point out, really, on a continual level as we make our way through life. Yeah. And I guess the last principle, interestingly, goes back to the beginning of our conversation and um, the courage that you've demonstrated about knowing the self, accepting the self, honoring the self, strengthen the self, that so much of this work begins with our courage to be that, who we are, amidst all of the chaos that we're in, but that without that, the liberation can't find its own form. And I think your work demonstrates that it begins there and that that, in fact, can lead to social change on a very profound level. Yeah, nothing stays the same, including people. So creating the space to accept our own selves around that change is inevitable. That's the uh, important piece that I, I know has been missing from humanity and the way that civilization has Uh, been structured. It is my hope to interrupt that and to create more space to consider more for ourselves. We're all transitioning uh, Mm. constantly, Mm. you know, through life. Well, you do it beautifully. And it's just been a great joy to be able to talk to you today. I I can't thank you enough for your time and for your insight and for your good work and really for your inspiration. Thank you. It means a lot and goes very deep. No, I appreciate it. It's uh, these days are rough. Uh, So hearing uh, inspiring words or appreciations and gratitude is uh, helpful. So thank you for giving me the space to share with you all. And shout out to all your listeners. God bless everybody. (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you, Will. Thank you. Change Lab is produced at the Bart Center College of Design. I'd like to thank our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Poland. If you like what you've heard and want to hear more of it, please take the time to review and rate us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.